So we're back again, Heather. Thank you for being here with me. Thank you. I'm always so appreciative of how reliable you are, but d- please excuse me if I seem shocked. <laughs> About what? How reliable you are. I, it's not a reflection of you. I just think it's this natural reflex I have being in Southern California, maybe. I don't ever expect people to be reliable. Well, I mean, I've never really had that problem, but I can see where people are like, oh, I'll be there in an hour, sure, whatever, and, and then they'll show up. hour comes and goes, yeah. yeah. Well, I kind of like willy-nilly a little bit because we all need a little flex time, but um, for the most part, you're pretty darn spot on. Yeah, it wasn't something that I was born with. I actually um, was really late to a lot of things in my life, and then as soon as I started KUCI, I just kind of... You got uh, punctual. I got very punctual, very fast. Radio. Yeah. I, I'm amazed at how I've been able to get my act together one day a week, too. It's just wouldn't, it, totally out of character <laughs> for me to be anywhere on time. So this live radio thing just must be like the best uh, tough love you can get. Oh, totally. Like I used to show up late all the time to work and my boss would write me up and I just didn't care. And then the, my attitude's completely changed after case. Yeah. So it's not because you're not a native to California then? No, no. I mean, I don't know. I don't think so. I hope Where not. Where are you from originally? California. Oh. <laughs> I don't know why I thought you were from the Midwest. Is that because your parents, your parents live in Colorado? So. Well, they moved out there. Oh, They're okay. originally from Lodi and Galt, or I'm sorry, Lodi and Fresno. And, oh, uh, God, that is California. Yeah, so it's a little bit Midwest up there, but um, no, it's just the way I talk. Well, uh, it's certainly backwards. I don't know if it's Midwest. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the South re- reaches up and grabs Lodi somehow. I don't know how, but yeah, um, yeah. Someone actually said that I I sound like I'm from Northeastern Arkansas, and that was oh, surprising. like maybe you have a bit of an accent, or yeah, apparently, I so. can see that. I I, th- I I hear an accent with you too, but. I can hear an accent within me, too, depending on what my mood is. It could be my formative years watching NASCAR in the 80s when they actually used to have a southern accent and you couldn't understand what they were saying. Uh, I might have just heard a lot of that and took it on somehow. Picked picked it up. I know. Well, everybody in radio is a little bit of a mimicker. They have a a bit of personality that they're... Always Actually, with work. my cold, I, I kind of learned that I can do fitting from home movies. I don't know if you remember that show on oh, Adult Swim. Yeah. I don't know if you saw that on Adult Swim or not, but there's a character on Home Movies Fit, and then he would... Just, well, what's funny about today is uh, having today's guest, I want to tell you a little bit about him. I, um, I have a fear of flying. Do you? Yes. And I, I came by this late in life. I didn't, it didn't bother me when I was young and dashing but, um, and living the jet set life, but I, I, don't, I don't easily come to flying anymore. So I'm a little trepidatious about chatting with today's guest, but I wanted to ask you about, <laughs> I wanted to ask you about that. Do you have a fear of flying? Yes, I do. The takeoffs I'm okay with. The turbulence over the Rocky Mountains, I cannot stand. That's the worst part of any flight for me. I want to get off immediately. Um, and then the landings, I just hate the anxiety of when do we actually hit Earth. And um, so those are the, those are the two parts: is the Rocky Mountains and landings. I hate the most. Well, today's guest we have local Orange County, Justin Petricus, and Justin is an airline pilot. And I'm excited to have Justin here today to talk to us a little bit about, well, first of all, what you do, how you became a pilot, and why. But more importantly, why people like us shouldn't be afraid. <laughs> so welcome to the real people of Orange County, Justin. Thank well, you for being here. Thanks for having me. And I have to say, it wasn't easy getting Justin in the studio. Um, apparently, the life and schedule of an airline pilot is rather rigorous. And 
and sporadic. You get a lot of surprises in your in it, your week, don't it, you? It's quite variable. I mean, uh, the way airline pilot scheduling works is your schedule can change month to month. And with that month, you may know what trips you're flying all month, or you may be what we call being on reserve, which is being on call. So if you're on call, you could be at home, but if, if someone get a pilot gets sick or maybe their car breaks down or maybe there's a snowstorm somewhere else, they need a pilot to fill in the gap. They will call you and either tell you, hey, we need you here as soon as you can, maybe get here in two hours, or hey, we need you tomorrow afternoon. Right. But, but there's a lot of variability within the whole profession, your entire career. I mean, you're not going to be working Monday through Friday, 8 to 5. It's never going to happen. Right. Well, it sounds like your schedule is a lot like the average soccer mom, where you really don't know where you're going. And <laughs> sorry to put it that way, but <laughs> I was sitting here feeling, you know, sorry for you. And then I thought, wait, that sounds a lot like my life. <laughs> Just wait till your so. kid gets texting. Now you're on uh, on demand with then that texting. Now, yeah, they don't have to call you. It's, demand. That's it's right. The electronic uh, servant bell, ring, ring. Well, you work for a major airline. I mm-hmm. won't ask you what major airline that is, in in case that uh, prevents us. It's a from major speaking. American airline. I could tell you that much. Okay. But. <laughs> All right. Well, just it might keep us from speaking candidly about cer- certain things yeah. that come up, but um, but I'm curious what. Um, well, first of all, just to give me a, a scope, do you fly the itty bitty airplanes of that airline, or do you fly the big heavy airplanes? Or I know airplanes are kind of classified in that way. So yeah, I fly the. What the, are we talking? Here? I fly the bigger ones. And the John the, Travolta airplane airlines. <laughs> <laughs> Depends. He has small ones. He has his own uh, private. Uh, 707, which was an airliner back in the 50s that were late 50s and the 60s. Uh-huh. That's his personal toy. Right. So that's kind of unusual. But it's um, pretty impressive. Uh, no, I fly, I fly airplanes that have a capacity of 188 to 225 people. Okay. What are some of the names of those? Oh, uh, 757, 767. Okay. Are those the heavies? Yeah, I like, mean, yeah. Is like an L-1011 a heavy, bigger capacity? Uh, L-1011 would be a little bit bigger than those, but I mean... No one really flies L-1011s nowadays. I just I just hmm. threw that out there, hoping you'd think I knew something about airline piloting. I'm, I'm impressed. That's, that's <laughs> <told> gonna... me. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really all I got. <laughs> I has, just gave you all I got. Oh, I was just wondering if the 777 has penetrated the market all at all. Oh, yes. It's been a very... Is that a new air, aircraft? It's Boeing's newer... Is it their newest? Or? Well, actually, I think it's been out since, gosh, I want to say 1995. Um, but it's oh, been we are incredible. So behind. Well, they have they have a newer one com- called the seven eighty seven that just had meant. its first delivery um, a few months ago. The first delivery customer was um, Air Nippon Airlines over in Japan. So okay, how many airplanes do you have to personally know how to fly to be an airline pilot for a major airline? Well, the way it works at the airlines, I mean, we can get into what it takes to become an airline pilot, but once you're actually within that airline. You get trained basically for one airplane at a time. Okay. Because... Um, Are there the, lots of nuances between them, or is there some basic mechanics that... After a while, they're all same but different. Okay. Um, the basic systems, how things work, you know, hydraulic systems, fuel systems are pretty similar. It's more of, you know, this switch is in a different spot, or this light means this on this airplane, but this older airplane doesn't even have that. Some of the newer airplanes have newer um, avionics, which is the um, navigation and the communication, radios, TV screens, computers, for lack of um, getting too detailed. Right. But um, that's usually most of the training is the um, learning the flight management computers and the um, the avionics. Just w- And the avionics would be the, um, if you ever see a picture of a cockpit, you'll see these little TV screens. The green lines. 
yeah, or, or, or in most cases, it's follow the magenta line. Oh. Although my kids will tell me, no, it's a pink line. Oh, cute. <laughs> They're adamant. It's, you're following a pink <laughs> it's line. It's pink. It's not magenta. But maybe, maybe because, you know, in the pilots, no, no, we fly magenta lines. It's a more manly color. I don't know. I'm here to tell you, if you know the difference between pink and magenta, that's not very manly. That's, <laughs> that's something that was pointed out a long time ago, too. Like, what? Uh, actually, from what I was told, though, I mean, I guess the uh, engineers that built these airplanes... Um, did some ergonomic studies and they found that certain colors, you know, your eyes and your brain pick up easier. And, and then some your brain probably turns off too. Yeah. So after a period of time. Yeah. So I think that's why they somehow selected magenta as opposed to green or blue or whatever. I don't know. My husband and I once decided to paint our dining room a shade of magenta. Um, well, we thought it was going to be cranberry when we did it. And let me tell you, after we did that, nobody wanted to eat in that room anymore. <laughs> so maybe that room, that color does keep you a little more more alert and less calm. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it keeps you intense or antagonizes you, you know. <laughs> that's right. We pa- painted it a nice neutral beige after that <laughs> experience. The, the, the differences in the airplanes, though, I, I told you I fly the 757 and the 767. And that's actually kind of unique when Boeing made these airplanes. They intentionally made two very similar airplanes so you can kind of hop in between both. I mean, I can hop in one the same day and hop into a different one. And feel like you were... The, 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 the training and the systems are very system on, uh, very similar on both airplanes. Okay. Although there's kind of a standing joke we have is that you spend most of your time in training learning the differences. Right. <laughs> so they're close, but they're still kind of different. But most airlines, you will fly one type of airplane, and when you get trained, because it's a pretty significant investment for the company uh, financially and time-wise. To train you on those? Yeah. When you get trained on a specific aircraft, it's probably, you know, uh, four to six weeks because you'll have two to three weeks of uh, ground school learning the systems of the airplane, and then you'll have a couple of weeks of of using the simulator, which is a... um, a computerized simulation, right? Where and it actually moves on hydraulics, and it it when you f- when you're in it, you really do feel like you're in an airplane, and right. they have graphics now that look almost real life. It's pretty impressive. Hmm. But you get trained in that, and then once you c- successfully complete that, you actually go fly a real airplane uh, for a very short amount of time, believe it or not, because the simulators are so realistic. How short? A week, two days, uh, one hour. Yeah, it's it's a total of usually about 25 hours of flight time. 25 hours to say that you've been trained. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, I, I heard you say earlier, though, that the difference in the training of the 757 and the 767, you only took an hour of training between those? No, 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 an, no, 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 that, that wasn't it at all, no. Okay, so no. to do those aircrafts, you've gotten about eight weeks of training plus 25 hours in flight. Yeah, maybe about six weeks, but yeah. Well, those 25 mm-hmm. hours, are there passengers on that airplane? Yes. And so you're a co-pilot to that? Mm-hmm particular okay and you fly only two different types of aircraft or do you well i've flown other ones before that's what i've been flying for the last several years that's what your company has the most of so well yeah i mean I, i've flown agile. 737s before and then i've flown uh, which you know many airlines i'm sure you you'll see them around you know just you can see them taking off orange county that's a very popular most popular airliner actually i flew that for a while is the 737 mm-hmm. and that's a little bit smaller those are generally you know depending on which model 120 to 180 people mm-hmm. yeah and then b- Previous, I, I worked for other airlines that had smaller airplanes, airplanes that do little hops, like up to Fresno, you know, L.A. to Fresno or um, L.A. to Imperial huh. or Yuma. Yuma, How about yeah, Page, Imperial Arizona? Valley. You were just out there. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Page, Arizona. I used okay. to go up there. I mean, just St. George, Utah. I mean, you, you name it, Merced. I mean, 
just okay. So let's take us back a little bit. Okay. Uh, somewhere along the line, you were a little boy who wanted had the dream you could fly. Is that how it all started for you? Uh, actually, I was very fortunate. Actually, I grew up in an airline family. Oh, um, it's in your blood. Yeah. Um, um, I have an uncle that was a pilot. Started in the late fifties, and my father, this uncle's brother, kind of followed in his footsteps. So, my father was actually flying for a. Well, an airline you never heard of now because they stopped flying in 1975. But he okay. was working for an airline. Oh, try us. <laughs> uh, Overseas National. Oh yeah, no, we've never heard of that one. Yeah, they okay. were. They used to fly a lot of um, soldiers to in, in ammunition to Vietnam, and mm. actually, he had some good stories too. I mean, he they'd fly the unusual stuff, like uh, if you had thoroughbred, thoroughbred horses, you need to transport them. You'd call their company, and they would fly your horses. Oh, interesting. Or your dolphins. He he has pictures of flying dolphins. <laughs> Wow. Down to uh, the Bahamas and stuff like that, you know, for some, you know, uh, aquarium or something like that. Uh-huh. But um, when I was three weeks old, he took me on a, on a flight up in the cockpit. Three weeks three old? Three weeks old, yeah. So that's, that was pretty, I mean, obviously I have no memory of that, but I just thought, oh, that's, maybe, maybe, maybe that's, that's the impression, you know. <laughs> <laughs> maybe flying is the closest thing you have to being the womb experience. <laughs> <laughs> You went straight from the womb into the there cockpit, you go, yeah. and you know the two kind of the sensation of floating. Maybe maybe yeah. you feel most at home up there. But 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 growing up, um, uh, he used to work for an airline that was just down the street here called Air California. Okay, and I'm, um, uh, I'm too young to remember that. What about you, Heather? Yeah, now, the now one, that I know you're a native. Well, the only like old retro airline I'm aware of is probably TWA PSA. Yeah, they, they, they were a contemporary PSA. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, TWA is the only one I really know of. Oh, yeah, that's because yeah. you're younger there. than me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, anyway, I, I had the um, the benefit of being around airplanes that whole time because when I was a kid, um, back in the day, airliners weren't as full. So if you were a pilot, you can take your family and say, hey, let's go up to San Francisco for the day or what have you, and you can get on the airplanes pretty easy because... Well, most airlines those days. most airlines have um, employee benefits mm. and one of the benefits would be you can travel standby right and you know so I had the the opportunity to go to a lot of different places and then we also um, we also had some small general aviation airplanes as well so when I was I don't know four or five years old I was washing airplanes especially the bottom of the airplane where all the grease and oil the drips soot, down yeah, yeah kind of like the, the sit yeah like spray and then when I was old enough to hold a screwdriver I was helping do the maintenance and all that, and I, I used to do maintenance um, even during high school and even during college. I spent some of my uh, vacations doing maintenance. You know, some airplanes need every year need a, an annual inspection that sometimes can take a long time. So I might spend my spring break doing the maintenance on an airplane. Interesting. So you didn't go through the path of the military, which is pretty common for a lot of our commercial airline pilots, right? Yeah, that that has been a, a very common path. No, I was all civilian. Okay. And um, and actually, while you touch on that, that that pathway is actually drying up quite a bit. I would think, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I know a there's bit of a, a dying of, breed, maybe. Yeah, I mean, the it seems like a lot of the uh, the, the unmanned vehicles are taking over a fair amount of stuff. Oh, but, be more specific. I, tell me what you mean by that. Well, in the military, um, they're doing instead of uh, having surveillance aircraft oh, and, and the, spy planes and stuff, the, the, uh, like the drones, basically. The military pathway is driving yeah, yeah, up yeah, is what yeah. you meant. Yes, I, I'm I thought sorry. you meant the civilian pathway. Okay. Well, that that also. Uh-oh. We'll, we'll talk the military one first. The, and the military has been downsizing as well. 
That's just true. because of costs. I mean, it's just like everyone else. Fuel costs more money, so people are flying less. So um, there's less. They're, they're trying to eliminate more and more pilots, even though they still need a lot for transport and stuff. And obviously, with two wars been going on, they've needed a lot of pilots. But over time, that that's kind of downsized. That's a good point. Okay. Well, so then where does that leave us? Well, you were about to tell us why the com- why just all commercial is or all civilian is drying up too but tell me tell me like if somebody said i have the dream of flying how would they even get the experience that you had that sounds like that would be hard to come by unless they too had some sort of an in because it's not like parents are going to be able to take you to the airport anymore those restrictions are probably way too high and um, unless you were a family with extreme means and had access to air, air, airplanes, um, nobody's going to let you on to a commercial um, airport anymore to watch your dad at work. Yeah, I mean, uh, at, a, at a bigger airport, that's very true. But even at the smaller airports, um, you know, years ago, there were plenty of smaller airports, even in Southern California in Huntington Beach or down in even San Juan Capistrano. And um, as real estate got more valuable, they, they built houses and what have you. But um, economically, people are being able to, less able to have a hobby such as flying okay and if you have you know the doctor or or, uh, the contractor or the plumber or whoever that on the weekends they like to fly and hang out at the airport they can't afford that the opportunities for a kid just to hang out kids used to be able to just hang out at the airport and after a while guys like hey come here you know if you you know wash my airplane and I'll take you and I'll let you fly it for an hour or something like that kind of a bartering and it was also a, a mentoring type of process right and as time goes on, there's less people flying general aviation, which is like the small private airplanes. And there's less opportunities for the kids to do that. And also some of the airports are getting more tighter security. So there's a lot of different aspects that are reducing, just exposing aviation to children or to younger people so they don't even think about it. So what do you think's going to happen? Or what do you think needs to happen to keep the... Uh, the funnel of pilots coming through to, to sustain the airlines? Or do you think that the airlines are going to have less routes and fly less? Uh, no, I don't think that would happen. I think eventually they might go back to what's called an ab initio program. A what? Ab initio. And I believe, you know, pardon my Latin, Latin? I believe it's from, I think it's from, from the beginning. Okay. And it, this happened even in the, oh gosh, I want to think the early 1960s. Certain airlines would actually... Um, I'm not even sure if they went to college campuses and did recruiting, but they let's say they did. And they go to the campus and have like a job fair and say, hey, do you want to be an airline pilot? Okay, get hired with us. We'll train you, you know, very minimally. Yikes. That's just going to feed my fears. Well, what about you? Well, <laughs> that, that, I mean, rightly so. That's, a, that's an argument that many... Uh, Justin oh, is shrugging his shoulders like I'm right or something. Well, <laughs> that's the question that many aviation educators are debating because their thought is if we have um, rigid syllabi, if we have um, rigid training standards, we could, doesn't, the number of hours is irrelevant as long as you have the good training. Gotcha. And I don't know, Heather, I mean, if someone came in and talked to you and said, you know, if you trained them on the basics of doing what you do, would they be as good as you or the experience counts too? I mean, what? How does that work? I think a lot of it's trial and error. So if you... <laughs> you don't get to do that when you're an airline no, pilot. No, you don't. Well, there's, yeah. there's, there's a simulator. <laughs> so 
I mean, that that works out too. And then some of the things you just have to problem shoot in your own head with the more complicated things too. Well, you just mentioned troubleshooting, and that's that's exactly what can happen. You you could train so much, but if something's outside the box of that training, outside the parameters, now you have to rely on experience. And if you don't have the experience, now you're kind of in uh, I don't know, virgin territory, right? Yeah. Now, if you're just tuning in today, um, you are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. This is Kimberly Martin's Real People of Orange County. And we have with us in the studio Justin Petricus, and he is a airline, commercial airline pilot, and he's telling us a little bit about the job of an airline pilot, how you become an airline pilot, and why people like me and Heather probably shouldn't be afraid, or as we dig a little deeper, maybe why we should be if we have a, a little fear of flying. <laughs> well, theoretically, I'm not afraid of a flying. It's just a turbulent. You're afraid of the, landing, taking off, well, and turbulence. <laughs> well, from from both from my age of three to when I was 21, I hadn't been on a plane, and so we just experienced really rough turbulence over the Rocky um. Mountains, and that was terrible. Um, and then when I went to Sweden, we experienced not as bad, but um, we were circling over London for about 45 minutes, and it just kind of got into an anxiety attack where when are we um. actually going to land? So I think that's where both of those things came from. Sounds a little bit like well, claustrophobia. It, well, it's funny while you're talking about the, uh, the, the I don't want to say fear of flying, but anxiety. I've found in my career uh, many times we'll get um, I'll call first-class passengers, and basically these are people that are in business attire with the laptops and they seem to be the ones that are the most fearful and i have a theory that they people that are used to being in control in control yeah. don't like not being in control yeah and that's hard to let go right so like you're saying the uh, you know takeout's fine the turbulence you're not really sure what's going on and the landing like you said you might be descending or on approach and it seems like it's forever or there's this or like you said in your your uh, holding over london I mean, that's tough. Now, and, we, and we try to communicate. In that case, we try to say, hey, this is what's going on and turbulence or what have you. But I do think it's a uh, lack of control. It's hard for people to let go. Well, uh, you're sitting before me here, and you look like a relatively young guy. I'm not going to ask you your age. But how long have you been flying? Um, He's 58. No, I'm just yeah, kidding. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm less than 100. <laughs> uh, uh, let's see. I'm trying they to took do his driver's license away, but he can still fly. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's about 25 years. Okay, well, 25 years is a long time. Well, and, and then I had, you know, like I said, I was, I've been in an airplane since I was a little kid, but that's just riding in the back. Those years. Yeah, I mean, like as an actual commercial but, but, airline but, pilot, 25. Well, pursuing it and then being one, yes. Okay, All but right. but uh, but I do have to say that, like I said, I was those really early years count. Those early years, I really benefited a lot because I absorbed a lot of knowledge just from being the exposure. I think for, for whatever reason, my personality, I just uh, kind of like a sponge. I absorbed a lot of stuff. I used to listen to the uh, the stories that my dad would have with other airline pilots and stuff, and I really absorbed a lot of um, a lot of wisdom. I guess you can say, you know, kind of just uh, on the job experience without being there. <laughs> you, know? you had a real passion then for flying, just based on what you did as a child you, and you the family you were around. This job to get to the major airlines, you need to have that passion, and the reason is is um, I've never been an actor. But I wonder if it's similar. In other mm. words, you have to do a lot of junky jobs. A lot of times you'll take one, you know, one step back to go too forward. 
Right. Um, I've done that many times where I left one job, but I took a, a lesser job because it would provide other opportunities or different experiences. Well, and the, and the, the money you make and for the amount of money you have to spend for the training really doesn't balance out. It is kind of a long shot to make it to the what they call the majors, the big airlines. Which is where you are now. Yes. Well, give me an example of what a junkie job is then along the path of... Because I would think if you're a pilot and you're a Paris... <laughs> that Justin's actually sounds laughing. like radio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see, I wonder, you know, it's similar, yeah. Well, um, you guys are laughing, but but I would think if you're a pilot, any airtime wouldn't be junky job, right? Or does uh, do you get to become an elitist at some point and you want to fly only certain aircraft rather than the little teeny tiny... Oh, no, I still like doing that. You like That's those. actually almost more those fun. Those feel now. more like gliding. Well, you have more control, right? <laughs> um, no, I, I think like, you know, people in other industries and maybe like you guys too, if you, if you have a passion for it, it does become a labor of love. And there are things you'll do. And even in retrospect, or, you, or you'll look at and say, well, that job wasn't really good, but I still enjoyed it at the time. I mean, the, the, the physical act. She didn't know any better. <laughs> well, that's part of it too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but, but the physical act of doing what you do, flying is, is just incredible. It's so much fun. It's challenging. It's rewarding. Um, and I always tell people, I said, I, I will always have the best office window. Oh, yeah. I don't care what your corner office is on what skyscraper I got you beat. See, now, <laughs> you know? that's true, except for I have a bit of a claustrophobic experience when I walk into that little tiny aircraft. But then when I look in the cockpit, I definitely lose my breath. How do you mm-hmm. sit in that tiny little space? Um, or is it well, because, luckily, like is you it? said, you have the view of the world there, so... Well, also, I have the experience. I've been in real small places flying airplanes. So where I'm at now, it's pretty comfortable. Okay. It's pretty nice. That, that <laughs> I mean, in comparison. three foot by three foot space is, uh, is enormous compared well, to... Well, plus you're, plus you're sharing with another person. Yeah. You well, know, you're sharing a cube, you know, a cube-sized a thing. Cubicle. that's, you know, And it's probably really, what, six, probably six or seven feet across and maybe about five or six deep and up to six feet tall and then it slopes down so it just slopes yeah. down it just looks like it comes right off the top of your head some of them yeah some and of them they get pretty tight getting into i mean but i've seen pictures of cockpits it seems like the windows you really can't see much out of unless you're descending um when you're i think a lot of those pictures you are taken from look a, down is that what you mean heather like you can maybe you see, just cloud, see, you front, see blue but sky you but it doesn't look like you can see much else <clears throat> No, no, you can see down. You might have to lean over. And I think a lot of those photographs, it's perspective. If you're standing, your perspective is very different. If you're actually sitting and you can slide the seat closer to the window, it's it's quite a good view. You, I mean, you like your view from yeah. your top. Yeah, but it, it, it's pretty amazing. But, but all the jobs I've done before... Um, and you were asking earlier about what's not a... What wasn't what a, a good job I mean, to, to the top. Okay, you know, you fly freight. Uh, freight. Oh. Freight. You know, now... See, I think that'd be easier because there's no pressure to well, drop all these people out of the sky. Families, grandparents, grandchildren. Yeah. I, I actually li- I, I like that feedback. Before. <laughs> Heather's laughing at me. My fears are coming out. <laughs> actually, I, I do. I enjoy seeing, when the, not the tangent here, but I like to see the people when they get off the airplane. Is the relief in their face? No, I, I just... I, I've, it's very interesting just seeing the... the, the cross section of humanity that comes comes down that aisle and goes out right. that door you just see you know different things you normally probably wouldn't see that's, you know in, in people's dress true. or appearance or you know stuff they're bringing it's just just interesting it's you know? like a high-scale public bus or something 
Yeah, yeah. Oh, I yeah. don't think Justin would like to compare his profession to well, that. I mean, some some people do. Some people do. I mean, there's, there's, it's, there's it's a, a good point, though. Well, there's a manufacturer in, in Europe that makes aircraft called Airbus. Ah, that's a good point. That and, you know, they that was part of the, hey, what are you guys insinuating here? I mean, let's say, <laughs> it, it, well, it, I mean, okay, I mean, it is public transportation. That is true. It is mass transportation. That's true. But... I, I <laughs> well, it used to be. It used to be more elegant. Now, do you? Well, yes. Be, because you look a little young to me. Do you remember flying during a time when it was more elegant, or were you too young for that? Yeah, I mean, it was. I guess you can call it more elegant. But you gotta, you gotta, I guess, condition that. It was elegant because it was more expensive. Right. That well, was a lot of it. Well, they just had the Pan Am TV show that came on right. for ABC that really gave us a little bit of insight as to where we used to be with with flying and to where we are now. It sure seems a bit of a bummer we're not back there where it was a more sophisticated form of Well, travel. there's there's several reasons for that. Back in, um, I think, 1978, there was what's called the Deregulation Act. Okay. And what, what before um, the airline industry was heavily regulated, I mean, it's still heavily regulated as well but back then the markets you can compete in you have to ask for government um, permission I mean for example if you said hey we want to start to fly from Los Angeles to whatever Miami you couldn't just go out and do that you'd have to uh, apply to a government bureaucracy and they would have to review it other airlines would chime in whether they thought that was an okay thing. So you can imagine what most of them would probably say. Say no. And then the government. Yeah, and then the government would have to give you a, a root authority to do that. When they deregulated, they said, "Okay, you guys can do whatever you want, whenever you want." I mean, regarding based on routes. market. Yeah, based on market marketability of that route. Well, right? yeah. If you know, if you have the finances, if you're losing money on it, you can you keep wouldn't. feeding it. You can keep doing it. But yeah, it was just based on that. What, what that did, it, it really did help the consumers because more airlines were competing on similar routes. So the, the, the fares went down dramatically. But at the same time, the reality of cost of, of capital, the, of airplanes, of infrastructure, of fuel is the same or keeps going higher. Right. So at some point, you're gonna, something's going to have to give. So the, the lobster and caviar and, and steak and coach and everything, that's Had that's long go. gone. Well, and did they cut on things that were more important, like um, regular uh, maintenance checkups and things like that? Do you Did you see a huge change in that, or did the regulations um, allow changes to be made in that area? Um, the, the Federal Administra- Aviation Administration regulates all that, and they've kept a pretty good handle on on that within all aircraft have certain inspections uh, and they get uh, oversight I don't think maintenance has gone too much I mean let me put it this way things probably minor things probably will go you know cracks in upholstery or a tear a tear on the carpet okay or some other things you know regarding the outside of the airplane but I mean nothing safety of flight so but things aren't as nice they're not as clean as they used to be. And, and, and the reason why I was telling, early, telling you earlier about how the prices went down but costs still go up. Correct. You can go to the Smithsonian um, Aviation Museum in Washington, D.C., the Air and Space Museum, and they have a small display, and it, and it shows the price of a ticket for a flight in 1964, Los Angeles to uh, New York. Okay. Any guesses what it would cost? Uh, 3500 This is 1964. Okay. So, okay. Was you're, I wrong? Kay. I'm going to guess 400 Closer, three. I think it was two hundred and forty-nine dollars. 
Well, okay. And that same display or exhibit sh- will show that the same flight today is about two hundred forty-nine dollars. Wow! But if you index it for inflation, inflation right. it would be about twenty-four hundred dollars. Okay. But that's not the case. So again, it's benefited the flying public, which is a good thing. Right. But I think the flying public still has the Pan Am TV show image mentality of image of, hey, I paid my 99, I mean, some airlines, $99, $39, and I'm still expecting the lobster and caviar on the back and the, the white glove flight attendants. And it just, it, you can't have it. You, it's either going to be one or it's going to go back to what Heather was kind of alluding to, the bus. Right. And you, you got to decide. <laughs> and, and I think consumers, by either, you know, financial choice or by uh, what have you, you know, the getting from A to B is more important as right. opposed to the um, the enjoyment of it. it, it unfortunately, the um, it's a means to an end. It's, uh, you know, you don't do it for fun. You do it just to get somewhere to have fun. Yeah. Whereas back then, I think they would, hey, we're going to have a nice meal. We're going to have an experience. I mean. Flying I mean, was the experience. Well, I mean, back in the cases. 60s or so, I mean, even 70s, I think you could ask for a, you know, go visit the cockpit while you're flying. Imagine that if you're a kid and the impre- or an adult even, but. And the impression you would have on that as you're flying along. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so just, oh, did you have oh, a question? Oh, yeah. Or? Actually, the thing I wanted to bring up is I read an article, I think, in Wired or one of the magazines that was saying that there's been so many tax breaks for private aircraft, you know, the corporate jets, mm-hmm. that it's kind of eroded the market for the first class passengers. And so it's a harder to fill those seats than it used to be. I don't know if that was true or not, or if that's a, one of the economic issues around the flying. Um I think that's probably part of it. I mean, uh, airlines have entire departments, what they call revenue management, that that tweak prices and everything from what you see on the internet to that first class, high yield passenger. Um, but I'm sure uh, I think that's part of it's the convenience factor. I mean, if you have your private jets, like you know, again, taking the bus or taking your limo, you know, your private jet's going to go when you want to go. Right. It's going to take you to a, a smaller airport closer to your factory or business meeting or your vacation house, more likely. Um, there, there was a move in the news yesterday, and maybe this is the commercial airlines response to some of that, um, where they were going to allow miniature horses and pigs and dogs to ride in the coach. <laughs> Did you guys hear about that? Did anybody hear about that? I think that's only if you put them in the overhead, though. I think, you can't well, let them I want to know what <laughs> or on a short bag leash. <laughs> a pig gets to bring if, if my bag's a size is Well, some pigs are little, somewhat. and you can bring them as a pet. Some well, people bring the little uh, the little dogs. They were calling them service pets, and that service pets would have to be allowed. But <laughs> I want to know who uses a miniature horse as a service pet. It's like service animals, yes. That's yeah. true. So they're, they're, they're talking about that. I don't know what, <laughs> what I should have done some fact-checking before bringing that up. But I just, that was on I a think a monkey be kind of entertaining. It'd be interesting to see a service animal monkey. I want to see that hopping around the cabin. I think it'd be kind of fun. I I just want to (laughs) know if they're going to get better food than we do. (laughs) 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 Well, um, okay, so I'm curious about a typical day. Give give us an idea. Like, do you wake up, honey, and go, hi, good morning, honey, and then you're (laughs) off to Japan? I mean, how does that work? I don't know. In my case, it's normally like at about 3.05 a.m. They get a call saying, Oh, yeah, someone called in sick. Um, can you, you know, be here by 5? In the morning. Well, is there <laughs> yeah. an incentive for you as a pilot to hop up and take a flight like that? Do they pay you unexpected time or overtime? Or do you no. get an extra route? Or how, do you get paid by route? Mm. Or are you on salary? How does that work? Well, uh, your whole career as an airline pilot is based on the seniority system. Okay. And that's based on your date of hire. And that, and that, and that 
that can controls everything from where you live or what base you fly out of to what airplane you fly to whether you're captain or the uh, co-pilot, what they call first officers. Controls your pay, controls your vacation. It's all important. That seniority um, numbers they call because you get an actual number. I mean, so you have an incentive have, to stay with a company once you start with one, then, don't you? Well, for better or for worse. Hmm. I'll, I'll, let me let me tell you this about the seniority system. On one hand, it's good because, for example, if they have cutbacks, they say, "Hey, we need to furlough ten percent." You can calculate on your on, the, on your seniority list and you say, "Oh, okay, I have this many people below me. I should be good." There's no um, office politics per se. Mm. The bad thing is you can be the best pilot, the uh, most customer oriented, the flight attendants love you, whatever. You're not going to get promoted out of out of seniority. Gotcha. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. Right. It holds you where you are, but it also can protect you at some point. Exactly. And, and because of that, you can't um, you can't go leave and go to another company. Because because of the seniority system, if you left one airline, go to another one, you would start back at the bottom. Like, yeah, like and the, a brand new pilot. Yeah, so that's, that's so you don't get credit or points for years of experience if you switch from one company to another. You would you would probably get rehired quicker, right? But you wouldn't start out With at a higher rank. The vacation and the so yeah. is that a salaried position? So if somebody calls you at three in the morning, mm-hmm. are you compelled to say yes? It depends. Um, most pilots were paid by the hour. Oh, okay. And but there's uh, again, I was telling you earlier how you, there's almost two types of schedules. You have a regular schedule where you know they call it a line of flying that you, okay, this month I'm flying to New York and Boston and Miami on these days. Okay. And then you have what's being on call or being on reserve, and that's for the, I guess the off schedule operations or someone got sick. So if someone calls you at 3 in the morning, if you're on reserve, yes, you're obligated to go. Okay. You might be able to pass it to another person on reserve, but usually that's, that's pretty unlikely. Like, okay. If you have a regular schedule, you can usually say, no, thank you. However, some airlines have provision that even on your days off, if you were foolish enough to answer the phone and admit that you were there, they could supposedly say, no, we are making you fly today. Oh. Even though you can say, well... Don't you have to have a certain number of hours of sleep before you can get called into action? Yes. But they ch- they probably say once you leave the airport, you're sleeping. And <laughs> once you've set foot on, you know, you're awake. And so... You need a minimum of eight hours. And c- sometimes that's been a, a condition where they say, hey, he's had eight hours, even though driving and, you know, right, they didn't taking factor a shower. In having dinner with your family or... Right. Huh. Uh, yeah, fatigue is a big factor. And as... as as um, airline yields get tighter and tighter, they're, they're basically trying to squeeze more and more efficiency out of the out of the employees that they have, and a lot of times they're trying to have us do kind of crazy things. For example, um, I had one flight, where I was supposed to have one flight, but I was able to move it. I was supposed to get up and leave New York at six thirty in the morning. Okay. New York time, so that's three thirty California time. Right. And by the way, you have to be there an hour before the flight. So now it's 2.30 California time. And then when you leave the hotel, you need me 10 minutes from there. Right. And you need to wake up, you know, take a shower and shave. So you're basically getting up at 1.30 in the morning. Right. Okay. All right. That's part of the deal. Right. It's not great. You land in Los Angeles at 9.30 in the morning. And then the company would say, oh, okay, well, tonight at 11.30 the same night, same day, we want you to fly back to New York. Oh, goodness. Uh, and you were so close to being home, Right. 
Well, I mean, stuck in L.A. They maybe do in a hotel sleeping. Is that what they do? They give you. Well, if you're based in L.A., they just say go home and then come back. So you don't get a place to sleep. You have to then fight the L.A. traffic. Mm-hmm. Try to find some rest. Tell mm-hmm. your kids to be quiet if it's in the middle of the day. And yep, exactly. That's oh, it. That sounds miserable. Yeah. Now it, I've I've heard that some of the airlines are no longer footing the bill for the hotels. That they're finding little. motorhomes to park up on uh, in the airport parking lots in some airports (laughs) and letting them sleep in the communal rooms there is that have you ever no you're mistaken there's actually uh, they're making uh, camping tents oh yeah it could be (laughs) campgrounds there'd be airport campgrounds is that true or (laughs) somewhere i just heard this and i thought i'll have to ask justin if any of that's Um, true or if you've experienced the katrina-like um accommodations in some of these locations that you fly to no well well, the way it works, I mean, uh, the company doesn't care where you live. For example, if you're based in Los Angeles or New York or wherever, I've met people that live, well, let's say that you're, I know people that are based in Miami and they actually live in South America. Okay. And they commute to get to, get to work. They just have to find an airplane within their organization mm-hmm. that they can get to. And they fly. I mean, years ago, I used to commute to New York, even though I was still living in Southern California. Some people commute by choice because because of their seniority, they might be able to go to that particular base and they'll have better flying opportunities or uh, more promotional opportunities, let's say. Other people, especially when airline downsizes, they are forced. They are forced out of the, that their particular base. For example, if you live in the Los Angeles area, and you get forced out of the base and now you have to fly out of New York and you don't want to move because you know, you're, you're already established here, you commute. So you will get a flight before, before your flight or the night, be- or the day before, or the night before, and you'll fly over to New York or the East Coast, and then fly your trip, or go to a hotel, or or sleep in. The, kind of what you're talking about. They have some quiet rooms with, you know, a couch and a lazy boy type thing. Hmm. Sleep there for a few hours, and then go fly your trip. So not just fatigue is a difficult issue, but actually finding a lifestyle within your life is probably difficult. Yeah. Yeah. It it, it it's a different just because the variable schedule. Um, the, the changes in your work schedule messes with your circadian rhythm. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you, you're familiar with that. Mm-hmm. So uh, a lot of pilots have uh, sleep issues mm-hmm. because, I mean, you're always getting messed around. I mean, within, uh, well, let's see, let's say a three-day period, you might have to um, fly a trip where you're, you start at 6 o'clock in the morning. And where we, where we fly out of L.A.? And mm-hmm. then where will you go? No, the East Coast. Okay. You know, pick your city, you know. And then... You come home the next day, get home at maybe 8 o'clock at night. And then the third day, you go back to work in L.A., and you're flying a flight that leaves at 11 o'clock at night, and you're flying back to the East Coast. So mm-hmm. you're staying up all night. You land, and the sun's coming up. Right. You sleep. You're supposed to sleep during the day. Right. And then late that night, say about 9 o'clock East Coast time, you fly back to Los Angeles. You get here about midnight. Mm. So within a four-day period, you've you know, started work at 5 in the morning for a 6 o'clock flight flown, come back at 8 o'clock at night, went home, went to bed, and then within that same 24-hour period, the next day at 9, 10 o'clock at night, you're back at work getting ready to go to fly up all night. So you're going back and forth, back and forth. During that time. Yeah. So, so what are the most days off that you have for a week in a row? Uh, I know it's not many because we've had a hard time booking this interview. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, it, it's variable and um, it depends. If, if you're a person that's flying the real long-range international flights, you might you might uh, fly to the um, to the Orient or fly to Europe, and you'll work three days, and you might have three days off. You might have five days off. Do you do a lot of those flights? Uh, I used to. 
I used to do stuff like that a long time ago, but now I, I stay what they call domestic here. Is that because of your seniority that you're able to choose that? Yeah, part of that seniority, yeah. Okay. But so when let's say you did do some of those more exotic trips where you were on the airplane flying for, you know, the 10, 12-hour mm-hmm. flights. Did you ever feel like going to look at the sites when you were in those places or just the first bed you saw was the most important thing you could get to? Oh, every time I, I become <coughs> tourist. Are you kidding? Oh, you do? Je- you oh, yeah. I, I, I think see. most people that do this job enjoy travel. Oh, okay. Enjoy exploring and so adventure and stuff. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Keeps you engaged in the process. Oh, yeah. I mean, for example, a lot of when I used to fly Europe, um, a lot of times you land there at 6, 8 o'clock in the morning and you go to the hotel and you take a, maybe like a three-hour nap, uh-huh. four-hour nap. And um, then you get up, work out to kind of get your metabolism going, take a shower, and then you spend all afternoon and evening playing tourist. Oh. You know, you go Favorite out. Favorite coffee shop somewhere? <laughs> it's actually funny. Um, and, and, and in other cities, I know more coffee shops or um, place, places to get other kind of beverages than uh-huh. I do in my own hometown because I don't go out. You don't go out when you're home. Yeah. Okay, well, give us yeah. some. What are some of your favorite towns to go oh. get a good cup of coffee? Well, I like Miami because you can get some... Uh, Cuban uh, coffee con leche. That's always nice. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. Any particular spot in Miami? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's one spot that people, might, well, few people might reckon. It's called the coffee window, and it's just it's a walk-up window at the side of a hotel. Really? And it's called coffee. I mean, I don't even know. It probably has a real name, but we all, we all call it the coffee window. You all go to the coffee window, and you get cafe con leche. Yep. Yeah, I mean, just. What's the name of the hotel? I'd rather not say. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's, in, right. it's, in, it's in Miami Beach, though. <laughs> it's some it's some tawdry hotel that he can't he can't tell anybody where he stays. <laughs> That's when he's off the grid. It's 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 the only Cuban place in Miami. It's easy to find. Okay, <laughs> yeah, I bet that makes a lot of sense. Okay, well, where what's a good coffee spot in Europe? You know, I haven't been there in a while, so I won't I won't make any claim to that. Okay, I've been I've been I've been there as a tourist, you know, a couple of years ago, but I've been flying Europe in a while. Okay. Um, any great restaurants that you like to visit when you're in some of your faraway places? You know, I, actually, I try to save money usually. Yeah. You know, just because I'm married and have kids and stuff, so I'm trying not to and stuff. get too crazy. Actually, actually I'll tell you, I just went to a, uh, an Argentinian place called uh, uh, La Vaca Gordo, which was pretty good. It means the fat cow. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was really good. We went with some other crew members, and we had a good time. But I mean, there's there's all kinds of places, and up in the New York area, there's some uh, inexpensive bars you can find, you know, and uh, that are pretty cheap and fun. And and you feel a little bit like a local when you pop in there because you're there often. <laughs> That's actually pretty funny. Um, see her laughing there. <laughs> um, actually, yeah, I mean, places like that. I used to go to Manhattan so often that. That people, I mean, I'd walk on around the street and tourists or people ask me where things were. Ah, okay. And I knew. And you, you felt at home. And I, yeah, I have, because, I mean, if you spend enough time, and, and again, if you if you like to explore and meet people and do stuff, you uh, you learn a lot about stuff. And you learn where things are, and it's, it's really enjoyable. Well, okay, so to that end, tell me a little bit about some of your more unusual trips or things that happened to you at work. Well, the, the beauty of every trip is that you're going to be flying with different people. I mean, you... You might fly with someone you've flown with before. You might see the flight attendants you've flown with before. But everyone has a story. Everyone has a different story. And it might be everything from about their family, their kids in college, all the way to um, their second job. 
and a lot of people, a lot of flight attendants, a lot of pilots have a second job. Oh, that's interesting. And, and what is the reason because of the economics or just be? A, a lot of it is actually, especially since uh, in the last decade or so, airlines downsizing in the industry. But I, I've met people that are contractors building spec houses, guys that do computer stuff, guys that are writers. I've met people that um, sell Turkish rugs on the side. Oh, <laughs> Uh-oh. I mean, I, wait. <laughs> I mean, I met I met tons of <laughs> I met tons of uh, you know realtors and uh, mortgage brokers. Right. You know, people that you know do a lot of different things on the side just to make ends meet. I mean, uh, uh, people that run apartment buildings and you know, manage apartment buildings. Right. Thing. I mean, just almost you name it. I mean, I knew one guy he used to rebuild carburetors at a carburetor repair shop oh, for their own business. I mean, just in South Orange County. So there's all kinds of different things. But but when you go to work too, you never know what's going to happen. Um, everything from if uh, you might enjoy the beauty of uh, seeing the lightning going through clouds, especially at night, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's really just spectacular and awesome. I mean, it's, uh, it's amazing how big a thunderstorm gets. It makes you feel really small. Um, just seeing the uh, St. Elmo's fire, which is a um, static electricity, that a greenish glow that comes across the windscreen. Oh, I mean, we'll only see that. Occasionally, there are some instances where you'll actually see a, quote, fireball go through the cabin. It's the static electricity. That, really? Yeah, I've... I had never had it in my airplane, but I've I've had stories of it. My grandfather but, flew B-52s oh. in uh, in World War II, and he flew on the weather missions. So their task was to fly their airplane right yeah. into the eye of the storm and take measurements of the storm. Oh man, that must have been some rides. So <laughs> I wonder if he wonder if he's seen the St. Elmo's fire. I I didn't know that was a I, I didn't know uh, about that. So I'm glad you shared yeah. that with us. But but we've had I mean some passenger issues over the years that are always kind of wild. I mean, uh, here's one for you. Uh, a few years ago, we're taxiing out of Chicago, and uh, the flight attendant calls up and says, "Hey, um, we have a pa- we have a problem with the passenger. I'll call you right back." And that's all, all they say. Yikes! Going, oh, yeah, you're like, what? Uh, okay. A minute later, okay. Stick uh, the airplane on autopilot and well, we're still on the ground. Stick out the window. Oh, we're oh. still on the ground. Okay. And then and then they call back and they say, um, "Okay, well, I think we're gonna have to go back to the gate. Like, what's the problem? Well, we can't talk to you right now. Um, just you know, start heading back to the gate. You know, and you're thinking, okay, is there a is there a, a you, melee going in the back? Can you is there go a fight? back to the gate on the authority of a of a stewardess just telling you to go back to the gate? Well, or that's pilots, a, we can do. I mean, you we are the final authority. Okay. So. Based on that, so as we taxi back towards the gate, they come and they, they call and say, "Well, we have this problem with this kid." I'm like, "What? It's a four-year-old kid kicking the seat in front of them, oh, nonstop. No, it wouldn't stop. And even after they talked, it was a full airplane. Talked to the child, talked to the mom, and the mom, I guess, was really trying to get this kid to stop. And this kid's just kind of screaming and yelling and keeps kicking the guy in front. And after a while, he just would not stop. So we. Had to go back to the gate, and I threw off a four-year-old. Oh no! <laughs> it was so bad because the kid was the nicest kid walking off. It was just he just was this is terrified. the person you're talking about. <laughs> this is our unruly yeah. guest. <laughs> we, 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 I bet you got a lot of cheers by throwing off the four-year-old, though. A lot of people uh, don't like flying with children. Well, it has its moments, I guess. I'm sure he'll remember that forever and won't do anything like that again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't think that's yeah. Well behaved now, hmm. but uh, no. Um, well, we get a lot, too, regarding passengers. It's really kind of interesting. On the all-night flights, usually about an hour or two into the flight, and it's about a, call it a five-hour flight, about two hours in the flight, flight attendant will call up, ding, ding, hey, just want to let you know. Sorry, ding, ding, that's the sound it makes up, so sorry. That's the sound. Sorry you, for the sound you effect hear there. You the, in the cockpit, yeah, that's our, ding, ding. that's our ring. <laughs> um, flight attendant says, hey, I just want to let you know we had a passenger that left the lavatory and passed out. It's on the ground. They're breathing. They're not blue, but just to let you know. 
We have yeah. somebody unconscious in the aircraft. <laughs> and believe it or not, nine times out of ten, it's about a 25 to 35-year-old. Who has been drinking? Uh, the only thing I can guess is that they wanted to make sure they sl- slept well on this all-night flight, so they popped a couple of Ambien or oh. something, had a few drinks in the bar, <laughs> got up to go to the bathroom to you know do what you need to do after you have a few drinks after a couple hours, and then everything hit them all at once, and boom. I've had people hit their head on the door. I mean, all kinds of crazy stuff. And you're just going. And so the flight attendant has to notify you when that happens. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, they they also do it, too, just in case things go from bad to worse, and now you have to go to another airport to get this person medically treated. I mean, what if if this person's having a stroke or a seizure or something major? And that's that's the whole, um, that, that, that creates the anxiety. And you're going, okay, is this something, you know, someone who's, passed out because they're drunk which they're not supposed to be anyway or is it something more serious and then you got to really think about okay what's the weather where's an airport you know if you're are we in podunk or is there a major airport because you don't want to have to start planning out the logistics of yeah what could yeah and you, you get someone's potentially their life at stake there you don't want to be messing around so right right well okay that leads me to the u.s um air marshals mm-hmm. are you guys aware if one of them is flying with you or are you not allowed to be made aware of that or maybe you can't say. Yeah, I Are mean, you not allowed to say? Because um, maybe you shouldn't say. Yeah, Ooh, maybe I asked a top secret question, Heather. And I don't yeah. think I, so. I, you don't think I asked a top secret question? No. I'm, I'm looking at his facial expressions. I can't tell if, he sa- if he's saying, I don't want to say because then my life is at risk. Because if, <laughs> if the pilots know that the marshals are on there, then we know who to target is the pilot. Or do we just not ask no, the question? Do I we retract cool. the question? You we're, tell me. We're pretty. I? We're pretty aware of what's going on. How about that? But no one. No one else really knows. You know who's there, and that's the whole purpose of that program. Right. But is you it know? is it as much as we, the people that want to feel safe, would like it to be, or is it not as much as we would like it to be? How prolific is that program? They got a lot of good. Co- let's just say this. Do they have a lot of good coverage or not enough coverage? Is it kind of like Border Patrol where we're cutting out major markets and and uh, pulling people back or understaffed, overstaffed? I'm not getting. I'm not getting. Uh, I'm not getting uh, much of a telling glance here. I'm, I trying, don't, to, I'm trying to think of a, a question should, back at you. If you, know, you should answer that question or not. When, maybe I should when are there ask. not enough cops unless you need one? Yeah, that's true. Uh, I mean, like there's there's coverage out there. Yeah. Whether it's enough or not, I mean, that's probably debatable. Right. But you know, that's it, a really good way out of the question. Well, I, mean, I think I think it'd be surprising. What does that say about me as a as a as a radio Paranoid. DJ? Have I not asked the question in a way that I'll get the answer? I think sometimes you'd be surprised though. Should it just, just dep- get depends. my law degree before I talk on the radio. <laughs> Tell me, sir, do we have enough marshals in the air? Well, the the absence or lack of or too many marshals, I don't really give that a thought when I'm flying. I just, you know, it's enough that, you know, where I'm going and making sure I have You're already putting your life luggage. in somebody else's hands, so what difference does it make at this point, right? No, I, well, <laughs> that, but it also it's like whatever happens, happens. I mean, when it's your turn to go, it's your turn to go, and so I it's just, just don't want it to be when I'm on an airplane. No, I don't think anybody does, but I mean, it's just like, there's <laughs> no, <certain> Justin's <laughs> going, yeah, well, me neither. <laughs> but, I mean, when you, when you talk about that, I remember years ago when I flew for a, a really small airline, um, and we would actually be at the door, and this was a smaller airplane, about 19 seats. And people would look at this thing, and they'd get in. And I'm here, first day I'm there. The guy looks at me, and goes, "This thing's safe." 
You're like, I mean, how do you absolutely respond? Absolutely not, sir. You're taking your life into your own hands. Yeah, you're like, how do you respond? No, I'm a daredevil, and like, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm flipping a coin. I have this could be fifty-fifty, man. Who knows? <laughs> I think everyone has a memory. You know, pilot's the first one to arrive at the scene of a crash, so th- th- oh, they, they, they have a, they have a lot at, lot at stake. Right. They right. have a lot of incentive to make sure things go well. So I think that should put you to rest. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I mean, All think right. About that. Okay. Well, so then th- that does ask me. You know, you said you do a lot in simulation. Did you and any of your fellow pilots do any simulation on the Sully landing in the Hudson? 